Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the first ever episode of The Visible Artist. My name is Sophie Loxton-Lucas, and I love talking to artists. In this new weekly podcast, I will be talking to artists about their paths to success within the creative world. And alongside these conversations, I will also chat to key art world individuals about their experiences working with artists. So this podcast is a must listen to any artist looking to make their mark in today's art world. My first guest is the wonderful Tasha Marks of AVM Curiosities. I have been such a long-time fan of Tasha's practice and ideas, so I was really excited to ask her all about her work and visit her home office with its own incredible cabinet of curiosities. It was an art historian's dream. I'll post more on Instagram, but for now, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi everyone, and welcome to today's episode I am thrilled to be sitting here in the home of Tasha Marks of AVM Curiosities in London. An award-winning artist and food historian, Tasha has pioneered the sensory museum experience using food and fragrance as artistic mediums, working on everything from scent sculptures to fully immersive experiences taking over a whole museum hall. Tasha delves deep into histories and culture to create rich context for her scent-based magic. It is, in part, this incredible attention to storytelling that has made her work so popular in the museum world and beyond. Previous patrons include the British Museum, the V&A, the National Gallery, the National Trust and the RA, to name just a few. A recent project, which I had the pleasure of visiting in person, was an immersive installation titled The Cedar and the Sea, a multi-sensory exploration of the neo-Gothic mansion to Temple Place. To quote Tasha from a recent article in the FT... I think about how smell can be used to change the atmosphere of a room and tell stories. Aroma allows us to craft a visceral experience in the mind of the viewer that goes beyond a museum walls. It can instruct, entertain and impart a sense of belonging. That makes it a powerful tool in the cultural sector. It opens up a new way to experience it. 
Tasha, thank you so much for meeting me today. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, thanks for inviting me to be part of the podcast. (laughs) I have so many questions about your work, but perhaps you could start by giving our listeners an insight into your practice by telling us about your recent amazing installation, The Cedar and the Sea, at Two Temple Place. So The Cedar and the Sea was a uh, multi-sensory commission for London Craft Week at Two Temple Place. Um, And I had the great uh, sort of privilege of just being offered this amazing building and being asked to respond to it. And Two Temple Place is an amazing Victoria, late Victorian building built by quite an eccentric man uh, called William Astor. So I was looking into the history of him and his family and the building itself and the people who built it. And the response was a sort of sensory, multi-sensory tour uh, and a, a large, actually probably my largest scented installation. So it started with a welcome cocktail, which was not a sort of like last minute addition, but actually sort of set the tone for the event. This idea of a sort of radical hosting, but also breaking down those boundaries between the visitor and the artist, because I was straight away there serving people and chatting. And it it definitely helped sort of um, make people feel at ease in their gallery space. Um, Then we had a fantastic soundscape by a composer called Troy Houston that very much responded to the building, Uh, the amazing murals that sort of surround the staircase and Uh, the stories that are sort of intertwined in them. And then finally in Astor's office, which was the sort of main upstairs room, I had a large um, hanging fabric scent installation, which is where the name of the event comes from, the the cedar and the sea. So it had those sort of woody marine elements intertwined with it uh, and also had a projected film, uh, which I made with a producer called Shan Toogood. It was a really immersive experience in terms of sound, scent um, taste and also sight of such a beautiful space that you were using after the tour I was chatting to um, Rebecca Home the head of exhibitions and she was telling me about how they were putting together this program of interventions with different artists to bring the space to life in a new way and I was wondering how you approach that project a building that's got such a rich history but does feel quite placed in the past Um, so how did you approach it? I think for me, I mean, the first thing I do when I approach a building is I'm looking for the stories that sound out, stand out to me straight away. I mean, there's not, um, I think there's something to be said for having that initial feeling about a space mm. and what people might be interested to respond to it. Um, so there's always many layers of sort of engaging with a space. But also, I don't want to catch people out. I don't want to tell a story so small that people are like don't relate to it or don't sort of understand it. So getting those sort of like macro stories and micro stories are equally important. And for me, I mean, you walk into this space, it's very ornate, very heavily carved. It's like walking into the bow of a ship. It's it's very... Yeah, woody and warm. And when I first walked in, I mean, this is a building that has is used now for multiple things. It's used as a film set. It's used for um, meetings, all sorts of things. Amazing things happen in this in this building now, and they have an amazing exhibition schedule as well. And it's still got that sort of scent to it. I remember walking in and being like, it almost smells like chocolatey in here mm-hmm. because it's so rich from the wood, and you can't replace that, and you can't imitate that necessarily. So when I was responding to it, I definitely the first thing I was aware of. Is I want to work with this space I want to like unravel some of those stories I want to work with the smells that are already here um so that was my sort of start point and then there's a great book about the building so that was you know researching a bit of its history Mm. extracting some of those stories those narratives to really weave it together but to tell it like you say in a contemporary way in a way that is accessible and sensory and brings those things to life because it's not about um I mean all history is storytelling I just sort of tell those stories in different ways And I love that you collaborated with the composer as well. How did that come about? Have you worked with him before or did you 
look search him out for this yes. particular project yeah so um yeah so troy houston is a composer i've worked with a few times um he's got a great approach to sound and i think in the same way that i approach scent as i'm scenting a space he also works with sound in a much more narrative non-linear way so not the ways you'd necessarily expect um so thinking outside the box and finding someone who really gets that and 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 is incredibly talented i mean troy is a brilliant brilliant composer um and yes we work well together it's our third project together the cedar and the sea Um, my background is actually in music before art history and there's so many exciting um companies now working with experiences and music and scent i think um like bittersweet Mm -hmm. if you've come across them yeah Yeah. (laughs) Uh, and the aurora orchestra so i absolutely loved coming to the tour at two temple place and hearing the soundscape and then walking into the space with your sense of course often the word intervention is used for your work and considering this in the museum context i often think of something more visually impactful and obviously scents and smells can can't be viewed by eye so how do you bring the visual element to complement the sense that you create I think it's an interesting way that way of thinking that I'm always thinking about how to make scent visible Mm. so often that comes down to the materials um, and that's also a a practical consideration because in museums you know we can't use things like atomizers we can't have liquids in the museum space there's certain restrictions that come with working with scent Um, so you have to contain that smell So then working with things like plaster and wood and different mediums to really contain that scent is part of the practicality of it, but it's also making it sculptural. Um, And I think the visual is part of that story as well. So what form and function is this form going to take? And they need to work together. Neither can be a sort of afterthought. But also at the same time, I'm always working with the museum space itself. Mm -hmm. So I think to be for me to be given a white cube gallery space is far more intimidating than (laughs) being given a museum. (laughs) Um, And I do see it as an intervention in that it's responding to what's already there and that scent is part of those layered histories and those narratives. And that's automatically how I think about spaces and stories. Well, you've been running events and interventions since 2011, mm-hmm. is that right? Um, and I imagine that the landscape of museums and their programming has changed so much over that time. And you've been part of that change. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's been amazing how things have, you know, I, I started AVM because I thought there was a, because I saw the ability of food really to break down those barriers of the sort of um, the visitor to a museum and to make people feel more at home. And then from working with food for a couple of years, I think fairly early on in my practice, I started working with scent because of its flexibility and the fact that it's the sense most closely linked to memory. So it enables you to sort of create a more longer lasting experience. But the appetite for it, like people have been getting increasingly interested in it. Also, it's definitely useful since I've been doing it for over a decade now. If people are nervous about it, especially museums or, you know, I always have to keep conservation on side when working with a museum environment to be like, well, if you're worried about it, I have done this at this museum or this collection and and I already know the things to avoid and what to do. And I think being respectful of the spaces that you're working in is very important because there is a huge element of trust and being able to get museums and collections to trust me to do something slightly outside the box has been the sort of change over the last 10 years of building up those relationships. 
Well, you've worked with a really impressive list of museums. And what's it like working with those organisations? Who do you work with? Is it the curators or the conservation team? It's all different. I often work across lots of different departments. I work a lot with the events team because Mm. with the senses, there is a performative element of it. I mean, senses that aren't, they are ephemeral. They're not necessarily always meant to last. So the idea of it becomes more performative. It becomes more event-based. But actually only in the last couple of years have I started working more with the curatorial teams and working on more long-form installations and and installations and things like that. So that's been a, a shift as well. But yeah, working across all departments, I love getting to work with museums. I never, it never gets old being in museums after hours. It just always <laughs> feels like such a treat and a privilege. <laughs> so do they just let you come in, you know, let you in and then you can spend time with the objects and the artworks and come up with your ideas? Yes, there often is a bit of flexibility, which is really nice. And it's it's a, always going to be a collaborative thing. Scent, uh, especially, is a collaborative process. From working with people to make the sense, to how I'm going to fabricate the vessel, to what we're going to do in the first place, to the research that goes into it. The, the eventuating sensory content is often the tip of the iceberg, and there's been a lot that's gone on before that. Are your, your ideas, are they usually too big for the museum, and the, you have to sort of coax them into it or are they usually on board quite early on uh, but there's definitely I have to uh, like give a few options of like this is us going big and this yeah. is us like stripping <laughs> it back a bit um, and normally there's, there's something in the middle but I mean museums are willing to push it that's really exciting especially at the moment they they are place, placing sensory content at the heart of what they're programming mm. and that's really exciting well there's now I think an expectation on museums from their audiences that they'll provide these sorts of experiences and tell the stories of the work in these ways rather than just the more, perhaps more traditional ways. Yeah, it also works. I mean, the senses are work across different audiences, across different age brackets, across different uh, requirements. So with people who have specific requirements for visiting a museum this doesn't affect language barriers if you have any sensory deprivation you know this is about working with the senses that people do have Mm. and doing something that is not separating groups that have different access needs but really doing something that accommodates all or has different elements of it so there's always something that someone can get out of it. Mm. I love how you mentioned that sense is related to memory and I recently read in the article at the FT that one of your pieces your smell state in the show London Port City at the Museum of London Docklands and um, to quote reduced one of the former Docklands residents to tears so familiar was the scent that you had created and it's incredible that you can conjure up such evocative memories for people in this way that's such an amazing response I mean it's always great to get a response like that and also scent is so subjective Mm. so you're very much aware that when you're making a scent um, especially something that's meant to be so specifically narrative so the smells for the uh, London Port City exhibition were inspired by a collection of oral histories that the Museum of London had collected so these were real life memories of working on the docks in the sort of from the 1890s to the to the 1980s I think it was And these are either people's real life memories or the memories of their parents or their grandparents that they recollected. And this one story was about a coat drying on the fire. And for for this person, that was their smell of the docks, their dad getting home from work and placing his wet woolen coat by the fire to dry out. And so when conjuring up that smell or trying to create that smell, 
I was very much thinking about, so my granddad was a taxi driver. And I remember the smell of his flat cap and I felt like that was probably the sort of smell that we were going for. Yes. So I was bringing a bit of my own personal history into mm-hmm. it. But you are trying to tell a wider story. So the fact that that resonated for me, but also for this person who then got to smell my estimation of their memory and the fact that it was it did work for them it was really really lovely and I mean the scent had already been through several versions drafts by the time we got to that stage we'd already been testing it out there's often <laughs> there's often many drafts of a scent there's not a like straight in there I mean very occasionally you get it right the first time but often there's a lot of back and forth especially the way that I work in that I work with I often work a lot with CPL aromas who are a large fragrance house so I work with them to do the drafts. I write the scent brief. There's lots of back and forth until we get to the final formula. So having a scent that really worked out, that was how I imagined it, how CPO aromas were able to sort of bring it to life uh, was really exciting. Yeah, um, and for the Museum London Docklands, I also worked with Aroma Prime. So working with different fragrance houses, different techniques, different ways of working was really exciting. So tell me more about the Museum of London Docklands show, because that's on, is that on at the moment? It's on at the moment. It's uh, one of their you know, major exhibitions. It's free with entry to the museum. It's on until early next year. Um, actually, not even early next year. I think you will have to double check for that. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty yeah. sure it's until May next year. So okay. you've got a good few months to go see it. Um, and it tells the story of, of really the Port of London. So how the Port of London, which is still an active port, has mm. changed the city, its people, their surroundings, uh, from like our language to what we eat, how it's all been affected by London as a port city. So these four scents that I created for the exhibition were commissioned by the curator called Claire Dobbin and she asked me to respond to the oral histories and from that we wrote a scent brief and developed these four stories so there is the smell there's two more literal smells we've got the smell of the coffee and tea warehouses we have the smell of mink skins like the tanneries uh we have more evocative more like um atmospheric smells so the smell of the docks themselves and this is like mid-century mid-21st century docks so you've got you know it's very industrial engines oil you know Mm. this is not a picturesque vision of the docks this is very much a working active space we have home which is the smell of the coat drying by the fire so we've got these different stories different narratives some larger more atmospheric ones and some much more specifically tailored to people's real life stories it's so personal personal for you you mentioned the the cap and then personal for people linked to that place that you're working with and then people walking into the space will have their own experiences as well on the tour at two temple place you obviously saw the reactions of the guests as they walked into the room and smelt the smell but do you usually see that or was that quite unusual for you to Um, witness the response yeah there is a certain element of like especially event space where i'm definitely hosting the smell Mm. and also (laughs) smell smell really gets people talking people want to talk afterwards Mm. um and i love that about it in that there's no wrong answer because if it smells like something to someone that's a valid opinion that's how it smells to them if it reminds someone of something then again that's their true honest reaction yes and and if someone thinks it's i suppose it's like any art in a way the artist goes in hoping that this is what people get out of it but in the end it's it's the audience interpretation that is as valid as what the artist intended and it's even more the case with scent because you're very aware that as much as you could tailor it as much as possible to be this is the story that i want to tell 
people will come up with the wildest interpretations and be like, oh, well, this reminds me of a trip that I had as a teenager. Be like, you can't control that. I'm not, <laughs> nor would I want to. I mean, that's all part of the story. So I love seeing people's reactions. I really like talking to them about it. And also with scent, it's not a sense we often use on its own. So mm. we are not very practiced at using it on its own. We use We use it with sight. We use it with sound, we're told this is what this is. And so when you smell it, you've already got a lot of the information. So to just smell at first and to pay attention to that smell, for many people is is not something they are very practiced at. So it also enables me as someone who is hosting it to sort of guide them a bit, to lead them to say, what if I said this word? Or what if I told you this story? Because that will affect how people then experience it. Well, I absolutely felt as though you were guiding us through the experience. At, I, I mentioned Two Temple Place a lot because that was a recent show that I went to with your work. But you were absolutely guiding us through right from the start. You mentioned the cocktail and then through the soundscape. But to take things back a bit, could you tell me about how you started on this journey? Uh, did you train as a food historian or an artist? So I did an art history degree. I, well, firstly, I always wanted to be an artist and I always felt like I would be a maker but I felt like I hadn't finished learning about art. So I sort of fell into art history as a sort of, well, actually my parents didn't want me to go to art school. So they were like, (laughs) go do a different degree. So I started off doing psychology, dropped out after four weeks, I think, changed to art history. (laughs) Um, And actually found in art history what I'd probably been looking for and really enjoyed learning about different approaches to art, different things I never would have encountered had I not done that. And my final year course in art history was partnered with the V&A and it changed depending on what curators were free. And my year, it happened to be the silverware curator who taught us food history. Mm. And that, again, took me in this whole different direction. So I knew that I was interested in the Century Museum, about early museums, about cabinets of curiosity, which is where my name comes from. So AVM Curiosities stands for yes. Animal, Vegetable, Mineral, which is the first classification of museums. Yes. So about classification, but about bringing curiosity back into the space, which I felt that a lot of white cube spaces were lacking. Mm. Um, so that was the impetus to starting I started not really knowing what I was doing and um, very much picked up projects and worked with people at a very sort of grassroots low level where I was building things up gradually. The V&A were very supportive from the start because I had studied with them. They were willing to give me a few chances. Oh, that's I, um, so they give me a lecture series to experiment with what I was doing. Always very supportive, which was great. And it grew very organically. I mean, it's been 10 years of really letting it grow, but about that idea of the senses in the museum being tools for learning, tools for engagement and artistic mediums, really. And so how do you find these collaborations with the uh, museums? Do you approach them or do they tend to approach you? They do tend to approach me. I don't know how I got out there in the first place, but as I mm-hmm. said, it's a sort of, it's been an organic process. So, yeah. and also like doing a good job, I feel like it is a small world, especially in museums, especially with what I do with Scent and Heritage. It's a small community. If people want something, there's not a huge amount of people who can do it. Yeah. So it's nice to be able to be recommended. I mean, sometimes I've met people at a talk and then seven years later, they've booked me for a project. Mm. Or I I think it's also really nice to be nice. I really help people out who are interested in working with the senses, who are early on in their careers. Yeah. And I've had people who I went for a coffee with because they wanted some advice. And later on, they worked for a magazine and booked me to write an article. So there's always these nice things and what goes around comes around and I think my methodology has always been just do a good job be nice (laughs) and keep loving what you're doing Mm. it's like that poster be nice and work hard (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) 
And well, I think, well, when you look at your projects you've done and your CV, it's really striking how thorough you are in terms of the context and the stories behind each piece. It's, they're so rich with layers. It's not just that you're creating a nice scent that is vaguely related to the space. It's just so rich in these layers. So I can see why the museums that are working really high curatorial level are interested in working with you. Um, I can't imagine there's that many people doing this, this, the, the same sort of work if there's if there's any I mean there are it's definitely a growing thing that people are interested in that people are beginning to work with it's very much emerging in terms of like curatorial practice mm-hmm. uh, I think artists have probably been using it for longer than museums have mm-hmm. but finding a space for that that's it's finally things are sort of coming together a little bit and I hope it will be a sort of growing industry and there are a lot of hoops jump through I mean working with scent is something that can be done really badly and it's definitely something that people should be mindful about approaching because there are hoops to jump through and it can be done like in a non-safe way it can you know you are exposing people to something in their environment so you do need to be careful about what you're doing Uh, and there's courses already out there that you can do to at least get an introduction to perfumery or how to work with scent in in a in a sort of cultural space uh, but to be a professional perfumer, you do have to have a chemistry background. Um, I mean, that that's debatable by some, but like people mm-hmm. spend 20 years becoming perfumers. Yeah. And so I would say I'm reluctant, even though when I started, I used the term perfumer to describe myself. I would say that's not valid. I would say I'm a scent designer. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, sort of slightly different roles. Well, there's... We've talked a lot about the ideas behind your work, but as... Yeah, of course, there's all the chemistry as well about creating the scents and then ensuring that they last through the space for a long time. Um, and you kindly just showed me your your study, your cabinet of curiosities, but also your scent um, closet. Yeah. Um, but yeah, could you tell me more about how that process works when once you've come up with the scent, what, what happens then? Yeah, so they're often very intertwined. So you are developing the scent while also thinking about how to display and, and showcase that scent. Um, they'll have different bases and different formulas depending on how you're going to show it. Um, So the first thing that starts with creating any scent for me or any project is the scent brief. So what do I want that scent to be? And that starts with language. It's very basic level. There's not a lot of words in the English language that are dedicated to smell. Mm. We could say something is fragrant or something is pungent, but that doesn't really tell us a lot about it. So when you're describing scent, you're using lots of different words. You're using colours, you're using textures, you're painting a picture. It's a bit like when you read a wine menu and you think yeah. like it's it's more poetic. <laughs> so actually writing a scent brief is in itself a very creative thing to do because mm. you have to not only think about creatively what is this going to be, but how can I write it in such a way that I can also convey that to others? And there's certain words in there that a perfumer will understand. There's a language of perfumery. You can hit some of those notes. But also there's a there's an extra bit that I sort of bring in, I think as a slight outsider, of I am painting more of a literal picture in my descriptions. So that is part of the, the creative process. And then from there, I might do a draft of the sort of thing I want it to be. Uh, or I might go straight in and, and send the brief to one of my fragrance partners and they all come back with their interpretation. And then I'll say, well, actually, if that's similar to what I've imagined, then that's a great start point. If it's not, then there's lots of back and forth and back and forth. So that's how it starts. And then in terms of how it's going to be displayed, 
yeah, about is it going to be sculptural? Is it going to be performative? Is it going to be permanent? Is it going to be for one night only? These are all considerations of how we're going to use it in the space. So, for instance, my piece that I have at the Welcome Collection, which is a sculpture that smells like human breast milk. Yes, I've seen that. I think <laughs> I saw it at one of the, the shows. Um, it was a few years ago. Yeah. What was what was the name of the exhibition? So it's part of Being Human. Oh, yes. yes which is uh, the new permanent gallery there. So that oh, is yes. actually now going to be there for at least another eight years I would say so um, it's one of the first scented sculptures in any museum's permanent collection so that was straight away a massive consideration okay we've got the smell which took a long yes. time to develop how are we going to showcase this <laughs> because I don't want as well for the team to have to be topping it up every day every week you know that's not sustainable for a mm. museum you can't add that amount of labor to the space over 10 years <laughs> I mean you're adding the, the cost there and the yeah, maintenance and that sort of stuff so the method for that sculpture I mean the the vessel is a bronze sculpture so it's very hard wearing it's very robust it's going to protect the scented core but that core only needs to be replaced every three months so it's a very slow emitting diffuser and do you pop in as a quality control check to see i can't help it (laughs) yeah i do sometimes (laughs) yeah i can't help popping it i also really like to watch people interacting with them just to see because you know being there as the as the artist as the creator people will respond differently to someone who's just popping in to have a sniff you know I love seeing like oh do they like it do they hate it do they even notice it was scented in the first place because mm. short of having a big arrow with a big nose that says smell here people don't expect to necessarily do that in a museum setting no. so you have to be quite you have to already break down that boundary to be like you can sniff that and actually maybe you want to it's not going to be horrible I promise well, some of them are. <laughs> <laughs> yes, people are very tentative in museums. They're just you just not used to touching or smelling anything. Yeah, standing yeah. quite far back, even from the yeah. works. I mean, I hope that will be the norm that, like, you know, in the future we will go to a museum and also engage with it in a more sensory way. So when I'm walking around any gallery. I often think, what would that smell like? Or what would that feel like? Or what would it taste like? I think appreciating art in a more multi-sensory way is really a great thing to open your mind to anyway, whether it's intended as a sensory artwork or not. And I'm not encouraging going to lick paintings like that. I just mean, think think more multi-sensorily. Mm. Well, you mentioned before two artworks that have inspired you, the Cara Walker's A Subtlety and Jennifer Rubel's Padded Cell. And of course, I can totally see how these works are connected to your practice. Um, but perhaps you could tell me more about those pieces and how you've experienced them have you seen them in person or so just I've, yeah. you've read about them? I mean, that's, I suppose, an interesting thing. I've seen neither of them in person and they yeah. are both sensory artworks. Mm. And so being able to appreciate them while also having not experienced them is, you know, that's how a lot of people will come across a lot of sensory work. But I still feel how visceral they are and yes. sort of they really are poignant pieces to me. So Cara Walker's A Subtlety was uh, shown at the Domino Sugar Factory in New York and it was a like four-story-high sugar sculpture that commented on the use of uh, enslaved people in the sugar process and also in the sort of in civilization so how the central figure was a sphinx which is a sort of icon of civilization but also a ruin mm. so how those two things are very much intertwined and how the history of sugar is one of great wealth and prosperity but also one of great horrors and and uh, atrocities so those sort of binary natures of things and those layered narratives i suppose that's why Carl walker's work is really influential to me also as a food historian i specialize in sugar yes. and her piece i think comments on 
that aspect of sugar's history that is really important to always really mention or include in the narrative because it's uncomfortable, but it's essential. It's part of, you know, for every lovely image we have of historical confectionery or these amazing cities we have like Bath and Bristol that were built on the profits of slavery. You know, that is what's going on behind the scenes. And that is a history that sort of needs to be noticed at the forefront of people's minds. Um, So that's why that piece is very poignant for me. And do you bring that weight of history into your work as well? Or do you, when you're working with a partner, I mean, is it ever tricky because they don't want to go down that route, but you as a food historian feel that that yeah the weight of that history i think for me representing those uncomfortable histories and those those multi-layered histories is very important Mm. but museums are very open to doing that and they really want to investigate history in that way so i've never never come across any resistance it's only been myself being like maybe i could push this further and also you question am i the one that should tell this story should someone else do it but there comes an element of when you use your platform for certain things. And I think that you can never do it all, but it's important to represent as many narratives as you can in the stories that you're trying to tell. And tell me about Jennifer Rubel's padded cell. So this one is, uh, it was an installation that was shown at the MoMA in New York. I think she might have shown it other places as well, but it's a padded cell. So it's a very small room where the walls are made from candy floss. Yeah. <laughs> and it's one of those things where aesthetically... It's a beautiful piece. It's quite stripped back. But the thing that struck me about it is the fact that it was often only shown for one night. So beyond display and after a while of being shown, the attendees were then invited to eat it. And you've got these great images of this piece being like ripped apart by people's teeth and sort of being shredded to bits. (laughs) And I just love that, that, you know, when you introduce food or you introduce the senses into the gallery space, you're not only telling a story, but you are also changing the behaviour of the viewer you know we're told in galleries don't touch anything don't lick anything you know so you know you break down those boundaries and suddenly you free people up to engage and respond in different ways and that's the same for all the senses whether it's taste or smell or sound or touch you know you are we're so used to being the viewer and using our eyes that we forget we can use the other senses as well So how much of your practice is temporary installations and how much would be, say, sculptures that live in a permanent collection, like the piece of the welcome? Most of my projects are performative. They are events-based, they are temporary. And that is often the nature of senses is that they are ephemeral. They're they're not always meant to last. So that there is probably more of my, my practice that is leaning towards that. But I've really enjoyed in recent years that it has started to become... How can we make this more permanent? How can we really integrate this in the exhibition? No, actually being seen as an artist is a sort of new thing for me. I'm not always considered a fine artist. And Mm. I often struggle to put a word on, or words, you know, people ask me what my job is. It changes all the time. You know, sometimes (laughs) I'm a sensory consultant. Sometimes I'm an artist. Sometimes I'm a food historian. Sometimes I'm a scent designer. So, you know, these things change. And I think being an artist is something that I've only really been able to do in the last few years. And it's been through people seeing me as an artist. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I think you need that confidence to just say I'm an artist, which I know lots of lots of creators struggle with that as well. Yeah. Particularly if it's not sort of down the traditional avenues of yeah. say fine sort of two D work. Yeah. And actually, my father-in-law asked me the other day, he was like, what did your careers advisor say to you at school? 
And I was like, well, my teacher told me not to go to art school. That's what, <laughs> that's the only piece of advice I've ever been given. And I do wonder if I'd be a different creative had I gone to art school. And I'm not ruling it out, I may revisit it at some point. But I think being an other in the art world is very useful. Having a different perspective, thinking about things differently, because there is no one size fits all, whether you've been to art school or not, whether you're a fine artist or you're on the peripherals, whether you're a painter, sculptor, scent designer, there is no normal anyway. (laughs) And um, was there a moment where you felt as though, okay, I'm actually, this is going well, I'm successful in this direction? The whole way along, I felt very lucky to be like, how did I end up here sort of thing? Because, you know, I never had a five-year plan or anything like that. It was almost very much making the most of opportunities as they came along. But definitely when the exhibition Being Human opened at the Mm. Welcome Collection, and it was like, this is a permanent installation in a major gallery, and it's got my name on it. It's sort of, that was a real, well, this is pretty special sort of moment. That was a real, I I feel like an artist now. And how did that come about? When did you get the call, as it were? <laughs> so I got a call from the curators for the exhibition who basically tasked me. So I went into a meeting at the Welcome thinking that I was going to have to pitch myself and sort of be like, they were saying, there's a new exhibition, do you want to have, have a chat about it? Went in and it transpired in this meeting that it was like, no, you've got the commission. We just want to have some idea chat about what you might want to do. Mm-hmm. So that first it was like, oh, wow. I've, you know, I have been chosen by the curators. You're one of the artists that have been shortlisted to be put yeah. in this exhibition. So that was very exciting. And from that, the thing I was tasked with was coming up with something sensory. It didn't have to be smell, it could be taste, but I ruled taste out quite early because it was a 10-year exhibition (laughs) and I felt that it would be unsustainable. To come up with something that responded to the theme of infection, that was my brief. And there's not a lot of pleasant smells that relate Mm. to infection. So that, um, And at that point, I was quite keen that it would be a pleasant smell because it was going to be in the gallery space for 10 years. People are going to have to work with this. Also, because scent has such a strong link to memory, I wanted to create a pleasant experience in that instance. There's a lot to be said for malodors, and I I haven't ruled them out of my repertoire. But in this case, I was keen that it would be something nice. Um, In some ways, it's more of a challenge to do something nice than to create an unpleasant smell. Yeah. Also, we are programmed to avoid unpleasant smells. There's <laughs> yeah, something, you know, we are, you know, it's like danger, danger. So <laughs> someone goes up and smells something and goes like, ugh, ugh, they're not going to read the label. <laughs> so, um, yeah, having something that it was curious, didn't have to be overtly, like, I, I was keen that it wasn't a human smell. This is, again, a narrative smell. This is telling a story. It's not something for people to wear. It's something to tell a narrative so from that I then got to work with the welcome collections team their scientists to look at their research they really made lots of things open and available to me I got to work with brilliant scientists to read their papers to understand their research to have chats with them and from those discussions I then ended up narrowing it down to be about breast milk and in particular the microbiome of breast milk so you know this is bacteria that's uh, given from from mother to child during breastfeeding that helps aid the breakdown of sugars. So it's sort of bacteria having a positive impact on something. So to develop the smell of breast milk, I then also got to go to the Hearts Milk Bank to go and smell breast Um, milk samples. Yeah. 
and you know, went with a perfumer from CPL Aromas who was helping me out and who, who helped design the scent. It was a very long process until we finally got to the final smell. I then got to also work with a sculptor called Robert Erskine who made the bronze vessel that it was going mm. to be held in. And the bronze, again, again has a smell. So all these things are, are happening at the same time because the vessel was being developed at the same time as the scent because the smell of the vessel factored into the smell of the scent. So wow, yes. these are layered stories, yeah. but it, everything is interacting together. So the story, the, the practicalities of it, the scent itself was all part of it. And as I'm saying this, I realise I forgot your original question. Where was I going with this? Yeah, yeah. I, I forgot to look too, so yeah. that's fine. <laughs> okay, cool. It's an amazing piece. And did you feel the pressure of creating something for this 10-year exhibition, basically almost a permanent collection, or did you just love the experience? I absolutely loved the experience because I had such a, a great uh, team on it. So the curators, Claire Barlow and Fiona Romeo, were brilliant to work with. On top of that, just yeah, having a great team that I trusted to work with. But also they trusted me because it was so much bigger than my previous projects in terms of how long it was going to be displayed, mm. the needs of that installation were different from things I had been working on that my initial plan for it I sort of had a eureka moment in the middle of the night where I was like oh it's not going to work and the vessel has to be made of metal because originally I was going to make it from plaster because plaster takes on scent really well but over 10 years it would have had to be replaced several times (laughs) so and that was factored into the budget but then I had a real moment of yeah it should be metal you know metal is it's pretty inert as a material so it's very stable so it can hold fragrance well inside it's not absorbent but it can have an absorbent core so it was very much a process and also going back to the curators and being like you know the budget I originally said I need maybe four times that amount (laughs) Um, and for them to just go okay because all your reasonings are fair that's why you've told us you need it uh, that's not always going to be the case at museums (laughs) but in this case it was I had the flexibility to do that I imagine they were excited to be part of creating this new scent sculpture as well so yeah. sort of open to the idea of having to stretch the budget yeah considerably <laughs> <laughs> well also scent you know if it's done badly it can have the complete opposite effect something that's done where the smell it doesn't achieve the desired result for the majority of people that's when it can really ruin an exhibition so actually you do want to invest in putting that mm. into a space to do it well. Because definitely when I first started, people's experience of scent in museum spaces was maybe the London Dungeons. Yes. And that and theme parks. That's that's the only place they'd maybe experience having a scent in a public space. Um, yes. My memory of scent in a public space is at Warwick Castle and there was this very dark room. I think it was meant to be the stables and it was a terrible smell. Yeah. But it was very evocative and yeah. I still remember that more exactly. than anything else. Yeah. And that also, feeling of being in that really small room with that really strange smell. I don't know what it was. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't as... It was just a ter- strange smell. I mean, also children love bad smells. I mean, bad <laughs> smells have a great... Uh, are great for people to interact with. And like I said, because we're programmed to avoid bad smells, it also means that they stay in our memory. Mm. It's about part of our learning bank to be like, that was not nice. But I have done that. So you can really embrace that and use that to your advantage as a as a storyteller. So at the at the Museum of London show at the moment, one of the smells is particularly unpleasant. It's the smell of the mink skins. Mm. And when I first made that smell, the feedback from the curators was, it's not horrible enough for you to make it worse. <laughs> so we went off and made it worse. <laughs> Seeing people's reactions to that smell, yes, it's unpleasant, but it also does paint a picture. So you, you want to 
be honest with what you're producing and the smells of history aren't always pleasant so being able to add that to your palate is really important Mm. Um, so yeah they don't always have to be nice but I tend to lean towards more pleasant smells uh, because I want people to really um, I'd like people to cherish them to want to take them home to be like wasn't that interesting or to go back to be like I want that again well I can't wait to go and check out the Museum of London Docklands show and of course anyone can go and see your work at the welcome collection but where else can we see your work do you have any exciting projects coming up I mean you always do but any that you'd like to tell us about yes I've got quite a few projects coming up uh next year I'm working on something for the Ulster Folk Museum in Belfast and I often have lots of projects come up in London so best thing is to keep on my website and see what's coming up you find me on all the social media stuff as well of course and I'll link all of this in the show notes and on our Instagram page and um, but I yeah I absolutely love seeing all your projects you never know what we're going to do next so thanks thank, so much thank you for <laughs> yeah thanks for this conversation it was fascinating it was lovely thanks for inviting me thank you everyone so much for listening today please do follow Tasha on ABM Curiosities on Instagram and of course the visible artist at the visible artist podcast If you'd like to support the podcast further, and it is so appreciated if you do, please do click follow and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from, whether that's Spotify or Apple or Google or Facebook, wherever it is, it really helps boost the podcast in the charts, which is particularly important in these first few weeks. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful week in the studio. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.